I'm Kara Miller. This week, as we celebrate American independence, we also celebrate American innovators, like Grace Hopper, queen of computer code. Without Grace Hopper, there is no layer of software computer scientists who build large billion-dollar companies. Then, how one man built a chocolate empire. This is messy, smelly, mostly disappointing work. And so the story of Hershey in these critical years at the very end of the 19th century is the story of someone will not give up. Plus, why a revolutionary idea takes so long to become reality. So many of the things that we see the hype about are still in the realm of science that hasn't been done yet. If the science hasn't been done yet, it means we don't know. We just cannot know how long it's going to take for a scientific breakthrough. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is the time of year when we celebrate American independence. But part of what has made America great over the past almost 250 years is American ingenuity. Today, we'll talk to a great American innovator, and we'll follow the unusual tale of a man who brought us milk chocolate. But first, the story of someone who changed your life, even if you don't know it. So let me bring you back for a second to 1986 to witness a strange scene a retired naval officer appearing on David Letterman's late-night talk show. Now, imagine that for a moment, a very straight-laced Navy type sitting in a comfy chair next to David Letterman's desk. And Letterman's there with his old-time microphone on the desk poking fun at the officer. I'm guessing that whatever your mental image is right now, it might be a little bit off. First of all, the officer was almost 80 and had been a pioneer with a piece of equipment that even in 1986 was pretty exotic. Oh, and she was a woman. And you worked on the original computer in this country, right? I was very fortunate. The Navy owed me to the first big computer in the United States, mm-hmm. Mark I at Harvard. It was called Mark I at Harvard? Mm-hmm. Now, in those days, the thing was... 51 feet long, 8 feet high, and 8 feet deep. And, and that was the pocket model. <laughs> Grace Hopper was born in December of 1906. She would have turned 112 this year. And somewhat late in life, she decided she had to be in the military. So you were older than most of the other uh, yes, enlistees or recruits? I just barely got in. I was 37. 37? Now, what, what interested you about going into the Navy at 37? Well, World War II to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of, been one of the hardest things to tell the people in this yeah. country. There was a time when everybody in this country all did one thing together. Yeah. In more than 40 years in the Navy, Hopper was part of a vanguard of computer pioneers, people who made the technology that we live with now possible. Now, I know nothing about computers, and you know everything about computers. You're, they've called you Not everything, all I can. Yeah, but is there anybody who would know more? Oh, I expect some of these good youngsters coming along know more. But you're known as the queen of software, is that right? (laughs) More or less. Mm -hmm. You hear the laugh there because the audience thought that software was kind of a strange and funny word. Letterman said it made him think of Tupperware, which goes to show how much the world has changed. Kurt Beyer quite literally wrote the book on Grace Hopper, whose story is amazing and sad and triumphant, kind of all mixed together. He's a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. Kurt, welcome. Oh, good to be here. 
So if someone is not in tech and Grace Hopper is this really important computer programmer, why should an ordinary person care about that? Well, I'm sure people have heard of Steve Jobs and Bill mm-hmm. Gates and the, some of the newer crowd, yeah, Mark probably. Zuckerberg. Yeah. Um, all of those people's careers, livelihoods, and fortunes are based on the innovations of Grace Hopper. So without Grace Hopper, there is no layer of software computer scientists who build large billion-dollar companies. Hmm. Um, Grace Hopper talked on uh, David Letterman about her decision to join the military. Talk a little bit about how December 7th, 1941, uh, the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed, how did that day change her life? It's actually where I start the book because from studying lots of different technological innovations, oftentimes it's a crisis Mm -hmm. which causes a society's resources to shift in a new direction. And not only the society's resources, but if you think back to our own experiences with 9-11, oftentimes there's a lot of personal soul-searching after the the crisis or event as well. So Hopper was living a somewhat ordinary life. She was a uh, a PhD in mathematics, professor at Vassar. She was married. Um, and within six months after Pearl Harbor, uh, she had left her husband, quit her job, and was trying to get into the Navy. Hmm. Um, but it was not, we should say, easy for her to get in, right? Well, at that time, there were no women who were officers. So her first year of trying to get in, she was unsuccessful until Roosevelt created the WAVES program so that uh, women could participate in the hmm. war effort hmm. as officers. There's a picture in your book of the 10 people, she was in the Navy, of the 10 people in sort of her crew who were working on this very early computer, the Mark I. It's nine men and Grace. Um, And you say, like, her commander, the person in charge of this whole team, was not happy at all that a woman had been um, put as sort of the second person in charge in his command. That's right. Howard Aiken was the uh, designer of the Mark I. And because he was not receiving uh, much support from the Harvard administration uh, for his uh, invention, he decided to start working with uh, the United States Navy. Hmm. And so even though the Mark I was based in a Harvard building, it was funded and staffed by the U.S. Navy. Now, because he made that decision, the U.S. Navy then was involved in sending the personnel who Mm -hmm. would be working on the Mark Mm -hmm. I. Uh, And because women were now officers uh, and Grace Hopper was a mathematical expert, Mm -hmm. uh, she was assigned to the Harvard Mark I. And because of the rank structure, she was number two in command. Mm -hmm. So initially, Aiken uh, was not pleased with this, but he came to very quickly realize that Hopper was indispensable. Mm. And not only was it rare um, in the 1940s to find people with PhDs in math, I'm guessing it was incredibly rare to find women with PhDs in math, which Grace Hopper had. So the one thing that really struck me when I was doing my research, I I had the assumption, like many people do, that women's rights and and the progress of women within uh, society is constantly progressing and improving year after year. It's linear in some sense, right? It's not only linear, it's sinusoidal, right? So we actually had more... Now you're getting technical. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We had more women with graduate degrees in mathematics in the 20s 
than we did in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and we don't see those numbers breached wow. again until the 1980s. Wow. And then there's been a staggering fall off since then. Okay, so she was maybe in a time where it was not as uncommon as you might think then to run into a woman with a PhD in math. She had this window of opportunity that she was kind of born and raised into, and that window actually shifted again against women in those types of fields in the 50s and early 60s, and then again in the 90s and 2000s. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Kurt Beyer, author of Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age. For the sort of non-computer programmer, what was Grace Hopper brought in to do? And I should say, this computer, just as like Letterman talked about it a little bit and when he joked that, you know, this computer was the pocket model, but I, maybe you can give the dimensions of it, but this was huge. Like, this was a filling-the-room kind of computer. This was nothing like the laptops or desktops that people are used to now. That's, that's right. Uh, so not only was the size uh, much different... But the speed, right? This is one of the fastest computing machines ever created, and it could do three additions per second. Mm -hmm. And your smartphone in your pocket can do a billion per second. So that was considered revolutionary at the time. But the, the more important point, and this is why Hopper is so critical to the history of computing, is... These first computers were like any other technology ever created by mankind. That technology only did one thing. So if you design a hammer, it hammers nails. If you design a lawnmower, you mow lawns. You don't do anything else with it. And the Harvard Mark I was actually built to do ballistics tables and just print out all different versions of the same equation. And so it was, in essence, hardwired that way. So the great revolutionary jump that Hopper made was, well, if we layer some what we call software today or programming on top of the hardware, we generalize the hardware, and we update the software, we change the software, we can have this machine do ballistics calculations, we can have this machine do calculations around ship design, Mm -hmm. we could turn it into a flight simulator, Mm -hmm. and then if you think of every single app that's on your smartphone, every single one of those apps is a different uh, technology, even though your hardware never changes. Right, so it's like a she's writing out a series of commands telling the computer what to do in today or tomorrow or whatever. That's right. So yeah. it literally is a technological break, right? It's, wow, we can generalize a piece of hardware, and literally through programming, we can make it whatever we want it to be. How did she go about this? Because we talked about this. She had a PhD in math, not a com- PhD in computers. I mean, there were no, there was no such thing as computer science. Nobody knew anything about computers. But she, you know, the Navy sends her to work on this enormous computer, one of the first of its kind. There's no, like, tech support to call. How did she figure this out? I mean, like, she didn't know what she was doing, and nobody could help her. (laughs) Yeah, the way she would joke about it was, you know, she turned to the manual but realized there was no manual, so she (laughs) wrote the manual. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, if anybody can imagine. she did, in fact, write the first book. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. She wrote a 
published it in 46, and it was really the first uh, book about computers and programming that it was ever created. So she had a she had to learn by doing. It was the war effort. They were working 24 hours a day. Uh, she was driving her team very hard. And initially, they were doing those ballistics tables, but Washington started calling them with different other types of problems. And mm. one of the most famous ones they worked on was to figure out how to cause a, uh, a ball to implode in equal directions, and she was able to solve it. And mm. it turns out that was the equation for the atomic bomb. Whoa. Did she, like, when did she find out or did she know that she was working on the technology for the atomic bomb? Well, she was working with a, a man named John von Neumann, who was a very famous mathematician mm -hmm. at the time, um, who was consulting with the government. What she didn't know is that uh, he was consulting for the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. So um, at the time, she did not know this. Hmm. But but she did, uh, and you write about this, she did um, get to a point where she was, you know, working very hard. She was kind of lonely. Um, she started drinking an awful lot. Um, and actually, at one point, uh, she got arrested. That's right. So if I compare her, the career path of Howard Aiken to... Grace's career path after the war. And Howard Aiken is the um, guy who's running, who Howard developed Aiken's the computers, the, running the exactly. whole show there. Okay. Exactly. So even though he was a graduate student at, at Harvard, completing his PhD when he first got the idea for the computer, um, and then went to the Navy to receive funding for the actual project, when the war was completed, Harvard made him a full professor. Mm -hmm. And pretty much they told Grace that know, she's only a contract worker after the war and that her contract will, will be limited because they have no permanent position for women mm -hmm. at Harvard. And then the Navy released her as well because right. they shut down the waves program. So, you know, she's you can understand in, yeah. in some respects that you're you're 46, you're uh, you can't do what you're meant to do, right? You mm -hmm. can't do what you've become an expert in. Mm -hmm. And this, remember, this was this was just the beginning of this industry. So um, I think she turned to alcohol, and uh, she, she actually tried to commit suicide. And it was one of her colleagues at Harvard, Edmund Berkeley, who would be a very important figure in computing also because he founded the Association of Computing Machinery, the, the Society of, of Early Computer Experts. And also he's figured out one of the, the first uses of these computers, which was for Prudential Insurance Company. Um, he's the one who I found his intervention letter in the archives, and he just mapped out this beautiful four or five page letter, which I, I have excerpts in the book, about how they need her. The, mm -hmm. the this new computing industry needs needs her. She's their natural leader. And so she she even with this debilitating problem she had, if she could only work 20 percent a week, she was still far better at this than all of them. Mm -hmm. So uh, I give him a lot of credit and I give her original Harvard team a lot of credit for not only saving Grace during that period of her life, but. Uh, setting her up to do the phenomenal things that come next. Do you think, uh, you must have thought about this, but if Grace Hopper could sort of see the reach of computers today, what do you think would surprise her and what do you think would not surprise her? So when when the, she pulled uh, different groups together to create the 
universal language of COBOL. This was in 1959, 1960. It, the way she designed COBOL and used her influence to have that become the standard, um, she had this notion of democratization. Uh, I think she'd be surprised by two things. One, 90% of all financial transactions today are COBOL. Wow. So that would That's shock her, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This is a language that she created in the late 50s, <laughs> right. early 60s. 80% of all active code in the world is COBOL. Wow. So that's how dominant COBOL became. Mm. And it's every time we use a credit card, every mm. time we use an ATM machine, it's a COBOL program running behind it. So I think that would shock her and maybe disappoint her as well, right? It's like, wow, you couldn't have improved on this? That's <laughs> right. I came up with time. this in, what did you say, 1959? <laughs> I think she'd be thrilled, though, that each of us has a computer in our pocket now. Kurt Beyer is the author of Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age. He's also a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. Kurt, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. We've got the full interview that Grace Hopper did with David Letterman, which we played clips from at the beginning of this segment. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. As we celebrate American independence and American ingenuity, it's hard to argue with the notion that some of the most fun advances, at least if you ask me, come in the form of chocolate. And to understand how America fell in love with the stuff, you've got to understand the strange failure-filled life of a man named Milton Hershey, who didn't just create a taste or a brand, he created a town. Nancy Kane is a historian at Harvard Business School who has written about Hershey. She's the author, most recently, of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, welcome back. Thanks for being here. It's a great pleasure to be here, Kara. So uh, tell me a little bit about what the candy business was like uh, right around the time that Milton Hershey was trying to get into it. This is the late 1800s. Sort of what's the landscape of candy in the U.S.? So the landscape of candy is perhaps most easily captured by your listeners thinking about Laura Ingalls Wilder mm -hmm. and Pa Ingalls, right, walking into the general store and buying lemon drops from a barrel or some peppermint sticks yeah. from the general merchant, right, and bringing them back in a little brown paper bag as a extra special treat. So candy and sugar, right, the real most important ingredient in candy, were relatively scarce and, in general, luxury items for people to consume. Hmm. And that really began to change slowly in the late 19th century, partly as a result of the proliferation of mass manufacturing, the, the slow, but then with building steam, the rise of a consumer economy. But it's still candy, you know, in in machines, candy at counters in supermarkets, candy 
candy everywhere we go, in bowls, in offices, or in workplaces, that's all in the future. It's completely unimaginable, right, in the late 1800s. So the creation of chocolate was not the first thing that Milton Hershey did in the candy business. And in fact, I was, I mean, I think of Hershey's as very successful, and it is, but this was a guy who went through bankruptcies. Like, he was a not a successful candy maker, uh, like, from the get-go. Not at all. He's, he's, his story in many ways is, what does the mileage of failure teach us, right, as an entrepreneur, as an innovator? And um, your listeners may or may not know that he was born in Pennsylvania, in the dairy country of really south-central Pennsylvania, not far from Lancaster. And so he grew up in a relatively poor family, tried all kinds of schemes to make his living, settles on candy at a relatively young young age, and then goes bankrupt several times in different kinds of candy operations, mostly selling at retail, but also some kinds of wholesale ventures. And so there was a kind of roller coaster quality to Hershey's career that lots of high tech entrepreneurs today would relate to. Lots of great leaders in history, like Abraham Lincoln, could relate to. But he learns a lot by failing a number of times. You know, kind of dusting himself off, picking himself up, mm-hmm. and moving on. Right. And and his mother's family actually gets to the point where they're like, "We're not lending you anymore. You're <laughs> cutting you off. You just fail all the time. You fail too many times, Milton. And most of the time, he's not selling chocolate. Right. He's mostly selling sour balls or what today we'd call cough drops or in some cases little nugget little heart-shaped or flower-shaped nuggets so again this is a market that wouldn't be completely recognizable to us and he turns out initially not to be very good at it mm-hmm. so he ultimately does find success making um, caramels why does he get into the chocolate business at all because it's not really a business that is big in America at at that time. Not at all. I mean, many years ago, you and I talked about Howard Schultz bringing Italian coffee to Starbucks and the innovative techniques and marketing, you know, tactics he used to do that. This is not dissimilar from that. Chocolate existed in Europe. It had existed in the United States since the late 1700s, but as a very, very rare kind of luxury item that was dark chocolate, not milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. And it was really the province of a tiny, tiny, small group of people. And Hershey really gets his legs as a candy maker in caramels using fresh milk. And then in the late 19th century, he visits a number of fairs, world's fairs, and discovers chocolate. Mostly dark chocolate, but but there are other players from Europe that are beginning to make milk chocolate. And he gets very interested in it. And he buys the equipment of a candy maker, a chocolate maker, at one of these world fairs, kind of buys up the equipment, has it shipped to Pennsylvania where he's making caramels at the Lancaster Caramel Factory and begins experimenting with it. Hmm. And he begins experimenting with milk chocolate. He'd been making and playing with dark chocolate in select ways before that, covering some of his caramels in it, interestingly enough. But this was more of a kind of, you know, a remote sideline for him. And then he begins experimenting with it. And he, like so many people you've captured and and interviewed and talked about in this program, is like an obsessive tinkerer. Right. Right. He's tinkering. He's trying all these things. He's sure that milk chocolate 
will be appealing to people and will ultimately right lead to something much bigger than dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. That's his real, if you will, leap of faith or flash of foresight that, that really defines the business. And he tinkers for literally, Kara, several years, working night and day well, to, to figure out how to make milk chocolate. I, I've got a, to that point, I have got a quote that really struck me from a colleague of his who was part of this tinkering. And here here's what the guy said. He said, uh, we were both afraid to say we were tired and we wanted to go home. Night after night and Sundays, we even worked the whole night till we were done out. You can't think anymore. You can't do anything. We would work on one experiment till it was done. I mean, you know, you think, oh, it'd be so fun to test milk chocolate. But I mean, like you said, this was an obsessive man and it doesn't actually sound like a lot of fun. No, and it's it's very, it turns out to be very difficult, logistically, practically. I mean, crushing cocoa beans, which is what he decided to do to actually get the chocolate powder, is difficult physical work that you have to do. It creates all kinds of, you know, powder that gets in your hair and your eyes. Figuring out how to add the milk to chocolate without the milk going rancid. So this is way before the birth of modern preservatives. We don't, he had very few options to try and maintain the freshness of his product. How to mix the butter with the cocoa dust, the chocolate dust is powder is very, very difficult. I mean, this is, it's so messy. It's so unlike like the way we think of when our mothers or we make brownies and we, you know, we heat the chocolate up and then we add the sugar and we like, all we want to do is lick the batter. This is nothing like that. This Hmm. is messy, smelly, mostly disappointing work. And so the story of Hershey in these critical years at the very end of the 19th century is the story of someone who, just like your quote, evidenced, will not give up. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nancy Kane, a historian at Harvard Business School who has written about the life of Milton Hershey. You alluded to this before, but Milton Hershey didn't just build this chocolate brand. He built a town to create this brand, which I I don't know how many other entrepreneurs can say that they have done. Why did he build a town literally, and it is there today, right? Hershey, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, it smells like chocolate, right? Yeah. Because one of their main manufacturing facilities is still there, and the streets right. are called, like, you know, Cocoa Way, right? right, right. The streetlights are shaped like Hershey Kisses, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't believe it, except it's true. I've been there many times. I spent a couple of months altogether researching this Harvard Business School case I wrote in Milton Hershey. Exactly how meant, I would design a town. Right, right. It's so interesting. <laughs> so my first answer is I think he starts out saying, this is brand new. We have to build it. A little bit like Josiah Wedgwood and the China Company back in the 18th century saying, I don't have artisans that know how to make the kind of luxurious China I need to create. I have to create them and the factory to make it because I don't have a template. I don't have a prototype. And I think Hershey starts off that way. So he wants to be near fresh milk. So he needs to be in dairy country. He needs to be near lots of fresh water because you need a ton of water to make chocolate. He needs to be near transportation hubs because he's envisioning early on a national market. He's got to ship some ingredients in like cocoa beans, but he's also then got to ship finished product out. So he's a bunch of prerequisites. And then last but not least, this is an interesting twist on the human element here, which is always important in all of these kind of stories that that you chronicle so insightfully on the show, and that is he actually is from this area, and he wants to settle in his home land, his home country. And he actually wants his parents to get involved in the business because they'd been they'd split up and he wants to bring them back together. So he's got this very interesting, like familial piece to it. So he gets started building a town, building a factory. And pretty soon he's decided, I've got to take care of my workers. I'm going to build not only a manufacturing facility, 
right, and the transportation infrastructure I need, and I'm going to lay a sewer, and I'm going to build streets, and I'm going to start building worker housing and making it affordable to my workers. And then we're going to need a bank. We're going to need schools. And we're going to need a dance hall. We're going to need an amusement park. We're going to need parks. I think he wants the stability for his workers that his parents never had because his father was such a ne'er-do-well as a provider. And the family was always feast or famine and mostly famine. And so I think there's a part of him that unconsciously but consistently is, I didn't know this kind of stability. My father couldn't find a job for a company like Hershey, with God as my witness, my workers aren't going to have to worry about their housing, their food, their livelihood, their kids' education. And so I think there's a very both idealistic and very personal piece Mm -hmm. to the building of this town that is very much close to his heart, as well as his the business model and kind of, you know, his strategy for the company. It's both good things going on, both aspects motivating him. And and there are, you know, obviously factory towns and mining towns with general stores and stuff that, you know, you can get things on credit. But this just goes so beyond that. I mean, he builds, um, you know, a hotel and golf courses and, like you said, a dancing pavilion, a zoo. I mean, there's almost something of Walt Disney in here that he's kind of building – I mean, he's building a town, but the hotel he wants built like an Italian villa. He gets really upset that when they're building houses for the workers, they're too similar to each other. And he's like, tear these down. I want everybody's house to be unique. Right. And there's something uh, like this plan. I mean, Epcot was supposed to be a planned community. Yeah, right. And there there's is. something of really it in here. That That's a really interesting observation. You know, the title of the case is Candyland, or the one that subtitles is. And and I think I'd never put it nearly I, as... I should say, you for Harvard Business School, you write cases, right. and you wrote a case. Forgive on me, Martin I wrote Hershey. a case, yeah. right, for our students and yeah. executives to discuss this case as someone who wanted, whether he was calling it that or not, to use his business to move what he considered good forward in the world, mm-hmm. right? So, yes, there's ego. Yes, it turns out he loves building. I mean, the man is kind of a frustrated civil engineer. He throws himself into the building of the town with such verve and such passion. But also I think there's a sense that capitalism, and he wouldn't have called it that, but business can be a force for good in people's lives, including in workers' lives. Remember, this is the age of strike after strike after strike. I mean, George Pullman will have a terrible strike, right, in the in the middle of the 1890s, right? Andrew Carnegie will have an even more terrible strike with steelworkers in Pittsburgh. This is an age of a great labor unrest as people pour into factories without the benefit of all kinds of OSHA or environmental or other kinds of protections mm-hmm. or union protection right. for workers. So some of what he's doing, I think, is very tactical. What's that expression, the best defense? Defense is a good, fast offense, yeah. right? Build them a wonderful place to work and live, and they will stay loyal. I think there's an aspect of that that's very much part of this. And then there's a part of, I wanted this because I never had it. And then there's a part of, what if business is a tool or a way of moving forward the boulder of social progress? I think all three of those things are operating for this man. When you think about um, Milton Hershey's legacy as a businessman and also even as somebody who changed food and consumption in America and literally what our tastes are, um, what do you think that legacy is? Well, first, I just have to mention one thing. As you were talking, I'm saying changed our taste. So at the time he got started in the candy business, Americans ate less than 25 pounds of sugar 
complete a total per year okay. on average per 25 capita. pounds Today, per person. Today okay. it's about a, between 150 and 170, right? <laughs> and there's good things about that and there's some really less good things as we all know right. because of the obesity and diabetes epidemic. Big sugar, right? Is Milton Hershey is part of big sugar, mm-hmm. although he never saw that coming and it wasn't a problem when he got started. But I think his legacy is one Right. Again, and my stu- this is what my students take away from it is the possibility of founding a business, not just to make you rich, but to make the world a better place. Secondly, the resilience. He was a very resilient person. I mean, lots of successful entrepreneurs are one shot wonders and they make a big impact on the world. And there's you know, they're worth our study and conversation and thought for that. But he wasn't a one shot wonder. He was about the power of dedication a kind of stubbornness to what he was trying to do because it was not easy to move his dream forward of milk chocolate. It was certainly not easy to build this town and stay with it as he did. And a lot of people who get as rich as he did and become as, have the possibilities that he have, lose complete touch with where they came from. And he, interestingly enough, as rich as he was, he lived very frugally all his life, hmm. right? He didn't, he didn't do the Gilded Age robber baron thing at all, although he certainly could have afforded to. So the ability to climb up to the, into the ether in terms of money and power and never lose sight of where you came from and what you owe to others that have less than you, that's an important piece of his legacy, too. Nancy Kane is a historian at Harvard Business School. She is the author, most recently, of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure. Thank you, Kara. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with you. Cover it with chocolate and a miracle to the candy man. By the way, despite the town that he built for his factory and for his workers, Milton Hershey did not escape the wave of unionization that swept the country. When his workers wanted to unionize, Hershey couldn't understand why. We've got more about that contentious time on our website, innovationhub.org. And if you're wondering what happened to the Hershey fortune, Milton Hershey gave most of it away to a home for orphan boys. That school exists today. It now accepts both boys and girls, and it is one of the richest schools on a per capita basis in the world. Predicting the future is not easy, and almost no one has the street cred to do it. One of the people in the tiny pool that does is Rodney Brooks. He's a robotics pioneer who helped invent the Roomba vacuum cleaner, and he now creates robots that work in factories. He worries that the hype around how tech is going to change our lives is often just that, hype. Whether it's self-driving cars or robots that replace people at their jobs or rockets that are going to take tourists to the moon, the underlying science for these amazing advances can be kind of half-baked. And when the advances are a little bit closer to coming out of the oven, they have to collide with us, our attitudes, and our unpredictable world. A few years back, Brooks told me that when he and his colleagues created those round robotic vacuums, they were shocked to find that people would name them. One woman, he said, knitted clothes for her vacuum. It's a story that underlines the fact that Tech does not just land on our doorstep. We've got to order it, and we've got to interact with it. And when it comes to predicting the future, we could be the really tricky part of the equation. 
Rodney Brooks is here to offer us his vision of what's ahead. He co-founded iRobot, and he's the founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics. He's also a professor emeritus of robotics at MIT. Rodney, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me here. Do you remember telling me that story? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, you uh, wrote on your blog at the beginning of this year, and we will link to it at innovationhub.org. You, you wrote about some predictions about when you think different technologies are actually going to change our lives or be integrated into the world that we live in. Why take a stab at predicting when different technologies will come to pass or be part of our lives? Well, I think a lot of people are making decisions based on when they think certain technologies are coming. And I think there a lot of the technologies have been overhyped uh, and are going to take a lot longer than people expect. And if we've got people making predictions, I, I saw that one city was uh, thinking about, you know, bidding for the Amazon uh, headquarters sure. and thinking, well, we'll have Hyperloop connecting us to the coasts. And I was thinking, well, that's maybe not quite going to happen real right, soon. Right, right, right. So I thought I would make some predictions, and everyone can make predictions. But if you put dates on them, then when those dates roll around, people say, you're right or you're wrong. You know, right. I figured I'll, I'll put it out there. You wrote, in my view, having ideas is easy. Turning them into reality is hard, and turning them into being deployed at scale is even harder. Talk about some of the leaps there, like between having the ideas and doing the thing and doing the thing and doing the thing big time. Yeah, well, I, I have a, a diagram I show uh, PhD students. You know, here's your PhD. I draw a little box, and then I make the box 10 times bigger. I say, when you've done that much work, you're ready to get seed funding for your company. Then I make it 10 times bigger again, and, and I say, now you're, now you're ready to scale into a real business. And then I make it 10 times bigger again, and I say, now you're starting to get the way you can think about profitability. Because everyone thinks the idea is the, the hard part, but that's all the other stuff around it. Right. And I think... Many of the people who are making predictions about tech have got a little confused precisely because of this, because we've had so much technology that has been relatively easy to deploy because it comes as code in our browsers. Hmm. And that's a really easy thing to roll out, code in the browser. It's almost zero cost to roll out a new version of code. But if it's an electric car or it's a rocket, mm -hmm. or it's Hyperloop, and involves physics and new physics and new technology, that's a lot slower to roll out. And I think we've gotten into this whole Moore's Law trap. Everything's Moore's Law. It's just going to come from faster and faster. For some things, yes. For services over the web, probably still mm -hmm. going to be faster. But for physical stuff in our daily lives where there's capital cost, no. I don't know about you, but the condo I live in is in a building that was built in 1905. Wow. So that stock, housing stock, is well over 100 years right, old. Right, right. Things take a long time to turn over in the physical world. When I also feel like you're saying that things for that we understand already, like we kind of we get what a car is. You know, if I introduced a shirt that looked really crazy, people still know what a shirt is. They know how to put it on. They know how to wear it. But if we're talking about... You know, something like the Hyperloop where you're in this little I, – I, I mean, the Hyperloop is this idea that Elon Musk had of, of Tesla and SpaceX fame and that maybe would get people from San Francisco to L.A. or something. They basically put in some little capsule and shot, you know, <laughs> for, to L.A. from San Francisco and it would be great. It would be quick. But there's no infrastructure for that. you got to go from zero to 60 on that. Right. Elon Musk, I think, is one of the two greatest entrepreneurs we have mm -hmm. in the world at the moment. The other one being? Um, Jeff Bezos. Okay. But building electric cars, 
yes, there's a lot of innovation, but he didn't have to invent door handles. He didn't have to invent how the windows wind up and down. He didn't have to invent what the seals were. He didn't have to invent tires. All those things have been built for over 100 years is tremendous right. knowledge. He didn't have to pave highways. He didn't have to, which Ford did. Ford right. actually was the one, the guy who said, we got we got to have some paved mm-hmm. highways. Whereas Hyperloop, we've never actually demonstrated it, even in a prototype. It's talking about moving humans made of flesh and blood at hundreds of miles an hour in a tunnel for hundreds of miles long underground. There's going to be a lot of things to figure out. How you load, how you unload, how people feel about being inside that little little capsule. There's going to be lots and lots and lots of things. It's not going to come as quickly as some people might think. Let's talk about self-driving cars, which in some ways I feel like there is an infrastructure. We get what a car is. We have streets to move it around on. We know that they pick people. You know, we know how taxis work. So even if I was picked up by a car that didn't have a driver, I get the idea of like being picked up somewhere and being dropped off somewhere else. But you say that self-driving cars, like the idea of having a taxi service, an Uber, uh, a Lyft, any you know any kind of service like that, but that self-driving. It's going to be 15, 20 years before that happens. Talk about why you think that is. It's going to be 15 or 20 years in the general case, easily. Right now, if you use a Lyft or an Uber, first of all, you wave your phone at it so they know that you're the person. Right, right. Then it pulls over, maybe into a bus zone, certainly not into a legal parking zone, and you exchange words with the driver and you get in. Car companies who are building self-driving, looking at self-driving technology are really careful about the law. I've talked to one of the major car companies. They said, our car will never break a law. Well, they cannot drive in my neighborhood in Cambridgeport any day of the week (laughs) without crossing a double line. You cannot do it. You cannot get around. Mm -hmm. Um, About every three weeks, I need to drive the wrong way down a one-way street. It's the only way I can get past (laughs) whatever is blocking the road. Okay. Um, Likewise, if we're going to stay legal, the cars are not going to be able to stop to pick up the passengers. So what we will see first is designated zones where you can be picked up by a mobility mm-hmm. as a service company, whoever it is. So it's not going to be just like it is today, except they're driverless. We have to bring in that new sort of infrastructure of where you can get picked up, where you can get dropped off. Mm. Now, what if you're in this self-driving car? Given the success of voice recognition over the last five years, it's gotten fantastically better. We're, we're used to talking to device in our kitchen, whether it be from Amazon or from Google. I'm guessing that we're going to have voice interaction in this mobility as a service car. And what if um, in my neighborhood in Cambridgeport, there is suddenly a construction site and there's no way to go forward? Am I going to be able to tell the, the car, back up, drive the wrong way down this one-way street? Hmm. Well, maybe I can tell it, but what if I'm a 14-year-old kid that's been put in there by right. their mother right. on their way to soccer practice? Right. Is the 14-year-old kid allowed to drive the self-driving car by telling it what to do? Or what if you've had a few drinks and you're not telling them something that's going to be right or, or helpful? Or what if it's a dementia patient mm-hmm. being put by the adult kids off to some event? So I think that the idea of the technology, we can sort of see how it works. But the implementation is going to be much slower and much more restrictive. And every time, every time there's some sort of accident or something goes not right, a dementia patient gets trapped in a self-driving car, say, it's going to make headlines. People are going to be very upset about it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rodney Brooks, a professor emeritus of robotics at MIT. He co-founded iRobot. He's the founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics. 
So your current company creates a robot that um, helps people in light manufacturing. I think it can fill boxes, right, do repetitive tasks like that. And I feel like one recurring question, you've probably encountered it 10,000 times, is how many jobs will robots take? And it feels like over the past year or so, the discussion about artificial intelligence and machine learning and the ability for um, technology to take white-collar jobs. Well, you know, we've seen, obviously, blue-collar jobs both move overseas, but also factories are, have more robotics in them than they used to. This fear about, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence is really escalated. Do you feel like that fear is justified? Well, I think things are certainly happening. No, no question about that. I think the predictions of how quickly we'll get certain capabilities are way overestimated. One thing that we're just terrible at with all our robots is dexterity. Hmm. We don't have dexterous robot hands. The hands that we sell on my robot look just like the robot hands that I used at Stanford University 40 years ago. Really? Um, I, I show in my talk, I show pictures of the two of them, and it's hard to tell which is which. And you don't think we're on, like, the precipice of completely changing We are not on the precipice okay. at all. Okay. Um, so we're not good at dexterous stuff. We are good now at moving in straight lines, mm -hmm. moving stuff around. So we see there was a Massachusetts company, Kiva Robotics, mm -hmm. which uh, developed a way of moving shelves around in a fulfillment center to a person who used their hand to pick up the object, but the person didn't any longer have to run along the, the aisle after aisle to get to the right object. Mm -hmm. The objects got brought in a whole shelf unit. Amazon bought that company. It's now called Amazon Robotics. It's many, many, many times bigger now than it was. It's being deployed in Amazon's fulfillment centers around the world. And Amazon is ramping up their employment of people to do the manual picking. And right. they can't get enough people. Right. Um, because robots just aren't there yet. Robots can't do okay. that. Okay. So, yes, as with every technology, there will be displacement of current jobs, the jobs will change. For the people it happens to, it can be disastrous, it mm -hmm. can be horrible, mm -hmm. it can be threatening. But I, I don't think we're at a point where, you know, many people say, oh, the job's going to be done by robots. Right, right, we're right. a long, long way off from that. In fact, if you look at U.S. manufacturing, uh, which has, uh, I think, uh, 300,000 manufacturers in the U.S., many of the manufacturing sites are very worried because their population in their factories been there a long time. They're getting older. It's hard to get younger people in. And in fact, U.S. manufacturers and Chinese manufacturers are very worried about where they're going to get enough workers from. How can we get better at predicting, at thinking through, for the average person, how long it's going to take for a new technology to really be part of our lives? Because I feel like there's, like I said, there's sort of media, there's reports all the time about something that feels like it's just around the corner, but from the way you think about things, not necessarily. So many of the things that we see the hype about are still in the realm of science that hasn't been done yet. If the science hasn't been done yet, it means we don't know. We just cannot know how long it's going to take for a scientific breakthrough. If it hasn't been even done at all, then it's going to take a long time if we don't know the science of how to do it. If we've had a lab demo, my rule of thumb for robotics is 30 years. 30 years from when it gets demoed. Do you know when I first saw a <laughs> car drive along a freeway at 55 miles an hour no. for over 10 miles driverless? No. 1987. Really? In, near Munich. Okay. <laughs> um, when do you think the first car will drive across the country uh, hands-free, feet-free? 
I don't know. I thought there was a Google car that drove across the country, but it, maybe it had a, a minder in it or something. Well, with, with a minder. With a okay. minder. When, when do you think? I don't know. It happened in 1995. 1995. Okay. It, so was, it was Carnegie Mellon okay, University. Okay. So the first one is 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Next one is over 20 years ago. These things take a long time. And people who are just waking up say, oh, you can drive along a freeway now. They think, oh, it's all solved. No, we're already 30 years in on right, self-driving right. cars. People have been working on actively right. for 30 years. Hmm. Is there a technology out there that you think the other way about, where you're, you think it may be more imminent then we may believe it to be. Oh, I wish I knew. Okay. You know, I'll give you an example of one that just snuck up on us, wham, and that is um, being able to talk to our machines. Hmm. Five years ago, I don't think anyone imagined we could have such good speech recognition, especially in noisy environments, as you see on the Amazon Echo, Alexa, or you see on Google Home. Snuck up on us totally. People were not predicting it was going to get that good that quickly. And now it's deployed. So that's something where, like, in the 80s and 90s, people were not doing demos of it. Um, I used to say in the early zips, you know, 2002 to 2003, about speech recognition, I'd say, yeah, it's sort of like, say or press two for frustration. (laughs) In in fact, I had had a speech-controlled office from around 2001 to 2003, where everything was under speech control. And it was hard work to use Mm. my office. But Mm. I thought, I got to live this, I got to do it. It was hard, hard work. And now, today, poof, it just works. So we will have you back in like 20, 30 years and see how this all shook out. Does that sound good? That's a deal. All right. Rodney Brooks is Professor Emeritus of Robotics at MIT. He co-founded iRobot. He's the founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics. Rodney, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we've got Rodney Brooks's personal story of a childhood spent in Australia loving space and science fiction. And he talks about the thrill he got when he first saw the computer HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey. It was a murdering psychopath, but apart from that, it was fantastic. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Chloe Lamolhey and Simone Migliori. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.